Welcome to Prayer in Private Parts, a podcast about sex and Jesus. I'm one of your hosts, Jill Thompson. I'm a registered psychologist and sexual health educator from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And my name is Nick Coates. I'm a minister here in Calgary. This podcast is open, honest, raw conversations, most likely conversations you have not heard in church. But we think you probably should. Each episode, we tackle a topic about spirituality and sexuality, and we see where it goes. So let's get started. Please note that while these conversations are just conversations between us, they do not replace any serious psychological or even theological advice. And that if you find yourself triggered in one of our episodes, please know that you can find help in your area. If you don't know of any of those places that are safe for you to access in terms of a distress center or a church that's safe and affirming, we can try and help you find that and you can email us. Here we are recording our newest episode of the podcast. I'm without Nick today, which is kind of a new fun adventure, but I do have a really special guest, Jess Burke, uh, coming in from, you're in Toronto right now, Jess? I am. Yes. And so I'll let Jess introduce herself and then we'll jump into some really interesting conversations. So Jess, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about yourself, that'd be great. Amazing. Thank you. First of all, I'm really excited to be here. As Jill said, my name is Jess. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Um, I think I'm a bit of a different guest on the show because I am Jewish. Um, So I come from a different background, a mix of a Hungarian and Canadian and Middle Eastern background. Um, And I grew up in Canada. I live in Toronto now, um, but I'm actually from Halifax, Nova Scotia on the East Coast. So I also grew up in a very maritime culture space, which has its own identity for sure. And uh, I actually work in public affairs by day. And at night, my partner and I are Airbnb hosts and dog parents. Oh, I didn't know you were Airbnb hosts. That's awesome. I also did not know you were from Halifax, which explains my instant attraction to you because I love all people from Halifax. They're just the nicest. It's honestly the farmer's market. Like, it's just the food. It just makes you nice. (laughs) Yeah, there is something. I feel like all of my closest people in my life are from Halifax. I also wanted to say that we had met on a panel after watching, it was a movie about conversion therapy, I believe. Yeah, it was the, a fish out of water, right? Yeah, fish out of water about deconstructing narratives about homosexuality in the Bible. And I remember being on the panel and just, people, just being blown away by your knowledge and what you had to share. And it was so great. So if Thank you don't mind, can we jump in and can you tell us a little bit about messages about sex and sexuality you got? growing up or from Judaism? Yeah, I would love that. So interestingly enough, despite being Jewish, I grew up actually pretty secular. Um, Judaism is so interesting. If you've ever seen the meme of the person who's at a whiteboard frantic with all of these lines all over the place, like catastrophically and chaotically trying to show someone else a message, there's a meme that circulates on the internet saying me explaining my Jewish identity, um, which always resonates with me um, because it's interesting to be Jewish and people can be Jewish and atheist or Jewish and agnostic or Jewish and religious because it is so diverse um, as an ethno religion. So, you know, there is religious Jews, cultural Jews, ethnic Jews, national Jews, and then all of the mixes thereof. So I actually grew up in a relatively secular family But because I feel that I grew up in a really Christian-centric society, I think my parents by osmosis kind of adopted this idea that like you just waited until you were married 
to have sex. And this is definitely a sentiment in the Orthodox community of Judaism. We have a concept called Shomer Negia, which means that you don't touch anyone of the opposite gender unless you're married or they're your child, or if you're a child, then it would be one of your parents. So there are like no touching laws. Um, I have a lot of Muslim friends and they call it the halal gap, which I think is really funny. Um, (laughs) Yeah. All my friends' marriage photos, like the halal gaps from before they were married are like the best thing on the internet. Um, And so that was kind of a concept that my parents just adopted and I never knew why. And it wasn't reconciled in my home as being a religious belief. I was never told you should wait until marriage because of God or you should wait until marriage because it was just the right thing to do. So from a young age, I was very aware that I was Jewish and very aware that you waited until marriage, but no one ever connected any dots for me, which I think left like a huge astronomical amount of question marks. Yeah, that is so interesting because I do so many workshops um, in the public around Christian narratives being just the dominant narrative. And so like actually as a as a society, we need to deconstruct those narratives of like purity because that is totally a purity culture message that it's so interesting that your family adopted even though not Christian, like that's just so fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was no reason, you know, I would ask questions. I remember being probably one of the more naive of all of my friends sexually. I also didn't know a single gay person. Um, I didn't know anyone. I don't think I knew that you could be gay. I don't think I knew that that existed. I hadn't personally seen it. I didn't know about it. I think I may have been like a tiny bit internally homophobic, not really being able to acknowledge that in myself. And so I had a boyfriend when I was younger and sex just terrified me. Of course, unbeknownst to me, I was gay <laughs> and okay. it was this terrifying I idea. Just, like sharing that narrative and like, like there's part of that that's not, not funny, but also just like, oh yeah, like in, in retrospect, like, oh right. Yes. When I reflect on it, it's the funniest things because I have my friends were so open and very supportive. And I actually feel that among friends, I think it was kind of, despite that most of my friends were Christian, I feel like there was a positive sex culture there. Everyone was no pressure. Never do it until you're ready. If you're not, you know, open enough to be talking about the sex, about pleasure, about protection, then you shouldn't be having the sex. I felt like there was some really healthy messaging in my friendship community, but I was like, no, I'm going to die a virgin. Like I was sure that it was never going to happen. Um, because it terrified me. And then of course there's, you know, accepting that you're gay in a Jewish family and what that looks like, um, and all these other narratives. So sexuality, uh, was definitely something, but I couldn't even cross that bridge into imagining kind of a more sexual being until I crossed the first bridge, which was even recognizing that I had an orientation. Right. Are you open to talking about that as well? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That is so interesting to me too, about Yeah, that there's like kind of a step, right? In terms of, tell me more about that. (laughs) Yeah, so I I truly, it's so funny because I hope eventually someone that knew me when I was really young just hears this. I did not know you could be gay. And I met my first uh, ever partner who is now a trans man who is married to his wife, who is amazing. um, And they're an awesome couple. Uh, and we've connected a lot. I actually think that they're planning to go to Tel Aviv pride to Israel, which is kind of like my home space. So I've been giving them some recommendations and advice, but my first ever partner at the time, we were in like a queer partnership and I was young and into it. 
we went to a party one evening. I'm positive. I must've said I was sleeping at my best friend's house and we went and there were all these people of all these different gender expressions. You know, there were like dykey girls, butch girls, femme girls, you know, people who are not girls, people who are non-binary. And it was a super exciting space. And I remember feeling like it was electric because I had never seen anyone like this in my whole entire life. And it's the most innocent, but I held hands with this person and that was it for me. Like I was affirmed and every single thing that I had felt that was insecure before that moment was no longer a consideration until the Jewish guilt, until the Jewish guilt hit, (laughs) which is very similar to Catholic guilt, I think. Okay. I I want, I thought story kind of just the way you described that was so beautiful and magical, but definitely let's talk about Jewish guilt because, um, yeah, I kind of imagine it as a certain narrative, like similar to, to Catholic guilt. I don't know. I feel like there's like a broom involved and like, yeah. And like metaphorically in your head, just like somebody choosing that out and don't think that way. Don't do that. Definitely. One of my favorite, I think, anecdotes about Jewish guilt is if you remember when BuzzFeed videos were surging on the internet, there's a BuzzFeed video about like your Jewish friend. And this girl said, I have to call my mom or she'll think that I died. And she goes, whoa, that's her Christian friend says, whoa, that's pretty steep. And she goes, um, you believe in hell (laughs) way deeper. That's amazing. I love that. So yeah. Tell me how that kicked in for you was it messages that you had growing up or was it just like was there actual like explicit things happening for you as you were coming out so I remember as I was coming out I mean I knew once I knew I knew and it sounds a little bit silly to say it like that or a little bit redundant but in hindsight it was so 2020 and everything was clear and then once I knew I couldn't imagine not knowing but other people in my life weren't there Um, I told my best friend at the time who was unfortunately not supportive. She decided to not continue being my friend. And I kind of felt like she was my first safe person to tell. So I was ready to tell her, ready to have her support and then tell maybe people in my family or people at my high school. Um, but that didn't kind of happen that way. So the person who was my partner ended up kind of being a support and saying like, you can do it. Like your parents are still going to love you. Everything's going to be fine. And, um, his support was obviously very meaningful. Um, I did come out and it was interesting. My dad was like, no, like I don't believe you. And right. now he's the most supportive person ever. So it's so interesting. I want to preface by saying he loves my partner. He's like, she's the best choice for you. She's the right person. He's so supportive. But at the time he was like, there's no way you're boy crazy. You've had boyfriends. You're all these like gender stereotype societal roles that I never really signed up for. Um, just total denial. Just saying like, it's, you know, not even it's a phase. Just no, you're, you've made a mistake. You're wrong. Right. <laughs> Fortunately, the answer is not that. Um, yeah. And my mom was remarried and her partner is very, very, very conservative. And he has children from a previous marriage. So we were in this big, giant, blended household. And their biggest thing was like, the kids can't know. There was like a significant age gap. And that's when I, I think that's probably when there was real guilt or real feelings of not feeling secure was like, your little siblings can't know because this is like wrong and gross. And I think that was the hardest part was 
don't let the younger kids know as if it was something terrible. Yeah, right. Yeah. Or like this idea of like contagion is often. Oh, nah. You're going to make your siblings gay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I accidentally joked about that once working with a client and then they got very upset and I realized, oh yeah, that's an actual narrative people believe. And I forget that sometimes um, being so far removed from it now. Yeah. And it actually is the case. So interestingly enough, I identify as gay or queer. I'm happy to accept either of those labels. I kind of reject the term lesbian. It doesn't fit me. I have several former partners who identify as trans. So it's not really mm-hmm. my word. I kind of use gay all inclusively. I'm still figuring out where I sit with that one, but queer is kind of my go-to. Um, and my middle sister is also queer and her partner is trans. And my youngest sister is also queer and kind of identifies as pansexual. So it actually did turn out that the three of us somewhere on the LGBTQ two plus spectrum. And so it's interesting because now I'm like, huh, I did make them gay. But again, not a great joke because you totally recognize that people go through this where their parents truly believe that that's like a genuine fear. Yes. Yes. And I kind of love that. That's like, yeah, I, um, my sister is more recently single and sometimes I'm like, are you sure? Like, she's like, yeah, I really like was open to it and tried. It's just like, I'm just not on that bell curve, I guess, um, as my colleague would say. So it makes me sad, but that's exciting. (laughs) All three of you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting. Um, especially because now I joke, um, part of what I do for work, or I guess like a small part of it or a large part of it, depending on the time of year is, as you know, because you've attended are the pride Shabbat dinners around the country. And I always joke because I say that my family is Jewish Halifax pride. Whenever we have a Shabbat dinner, it's just all my siblings and the partners of my siblings and the friends of my siblings. So whenever we have a queer Jewish event, I'm like, it's mostly just my family throwing a party. That's amazing. I was going to say, what is the Jewish community like in Halifax? It's pretty small, to be honest. Like it's, it's remarkably small, in fact, but very, very welcoming. Like I remember I lived away for a few years in Mexico. And when I came home, I just wanted to go to a Shabbat dinner and I just posted on the internet and someone took me in within five seconds. And it was during, yeah, it was during like a difficult time. People are so welcoming. You can walk into the synagogue. You can just show up. They don't care if they know you. It's really, yeah. I mean, I think now they might be a little more weary of who comes and goes from synagogue that's unrecognized because there's been a lot of vandalism and hate crimes are kind of unfortunately uh, more at the focal point of society right now but generally just so abundantly welcoming and warm yeah and that's been my experience too like uh, yeah just so welcoming and warm for sure um so how did you so like thinking about that you did grow up more secular how did that shift for you or has it shifted for you? Yeah, it's definitely shifted for me. Um, it's so interesting because I really feel that first you have to like unpack. I love the way you explained earlier about your podcast, just explaining, first of all, purity rituals and traditions, and then moving on from there about, you know, how can we have conversations about safer, hotter sex for trans people, multi-gendered, non-gendered, et cetera. And how do you just even begin a conversation and I think 
the way that I even came to my faith was recognizing that there's not one form of being Jewish. And I remember doing census information or being at university and filling out all those forms where you tick a box about who you are, quite literally putting yourself in a box. And ethnicity, there was never a Jewish box. There were all these other diverse representations in these boxes. But for ethnicity, there wasn't, you know, being Ashkenazi Jewish or just being Jewish. And I was like, okay. But I wasn't a person of faith. And then you would get to religion and they would say Jewish. And I was like, well, like I am, but I live in a Christian society. Like everyone around me has a Christmas tree. I don't really practice anything. I don't know. And then the older I got, the more I realized that Judaism is such a fashion, your own faith where, you know, you have people who keep kosher, people who don't, people who observe Shabbat, people who don't, people who go to synagogue, kind of like Christmas and Easter Catholics that go during high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, people that go to synagogue for that, people who don't go at all. And I just realized there wasn't just one way to be Jewish. I thought it was this huge binary of either I need to buy in and be all the way religious, or I need to be all the way secular and I'm allowed to have my little Ashkenazi traditions, like Begel and locks and my Yiddish words which I didn't know were Yiddish, by the way. I thought all those words were English until I was 21. <laughs> like sit on your tukas, on your butt, was for sure that was English. It is. I didn't know that that was Yiddish either. Oh my gosh, actually Yiddish. So, or schlep. <laughs> like, yeah, schlep. If you take your friend to Costco, I'm not going to make you schlep home on the bus with all that stuff. Also Yiddish. So yeah. I grew up very Jewish in a way and then not Jewish at all in a way. So as I got older, I started to realize, I think, I guess if I were to pinpoint a determining moment, which maybe is relevant, was I went through a faith journey of thinking, I believe in something. I think the world is too special and magical and so obviously curated that I couldn't just believe that it was all happenstance, but I didn't know how to articulate that. And I really didn't know much about Judaism, even as a religion, because I didn't grow up as a faithful religious Jew. And so I didn't know that you could be really traditional and observe these things as stories and as really beautiful teachings and not necessarily be all the way there. No one told me until I was 21 that being a Jew is a religion of deed, not of creed. You do the right thing. You know, instead of 10 commandments, we have 613. You do your best. You give tzedakah, you give charity, you practice tikkun alam, you repair the earth. You go out and you act as good as you can every single day here on earth. No heaven, no hell, maybe reincarnation. Um, you do your best. And at the end of the day, that's, that's how you're rewarded. And I didn't know that you didn't need to buy into every aspect, that you didn't need to have unwavering faith. And when I was able to learn that there was this huge amount of space to have like a conversation with God and with your community and with your rabbi and to work through things. And when I learned that asking questions was encouraged and that we're not just supposed to accept answers sitting down, I realized, wow, this is really for me. And as you know, I previously worked at a university as a religious, an interreligious and intercultural coordinator. And I really experienced, I think, for the first time, faith-based discrimination because I wasn't even sure if I identified as a person of faith. I knew I was Jewish, culturally and ethnically for sure, nationally also as well. And religiously, I was working on it. I was figuring out where I was with certain traditions and how I could make my satyrs more egalitarian and where it was that I fit into this really big, beautiful, chaotic mess of Judaism. And 
I would walk into meetings for lots of planning committees like Sex and Gender Wellness Week, which I was a part of, and Pluralism Week, Religious Diversity Week, um, just general, I guess, happenings at the university in celebration of multiculturalism. And I started to recognize that when I walked into a room, I could either be smart or religious, but not both. And I felt that people really rejected that. I could be academic. I could have all of my qualifications. I could be multilingual and well-traveled. And I could be queer and fun. But as soon as I was religious, that kind of, I guess, took away my credibility. And I think that fortified my commitment to my community because I said, okay, we can't keep going through this narrative of religious people just don't know better yet. And I was the opposite. I came to it late. So then I became a huge advocate um, for including just religious perspectives in secular spaces. That is so interesting to me. So many of the things that you said there, because I don't, I don't know if you remember this about me, that like I came to faith later in my life as well. And yeah, yeah that's why I talk about second sexuality in church spaces is because I got to church later in life and was like, why isn't anybody talking about this? How is this a thing? And that's so fascinating to me that you couldn't be smart and religious, but you had to be one or the other. And you've talked a little bit already a couple times about binaries, right? And that's so much of what we've been unpacking on this podcast. And love that. When we talk about church and sexuality, is we just we just love binaries and this so much. Um, but they're the worst. <laughs> I know. I love that you're unpacking this because it is true. I think that a lot of people believe. And sometimes I've even felt it in my own community, you know, where I wonder, am I Jewish enough? Am I doing this the right way? And at the end of the day, I think I've had a lot of humbling experiences. I will be honest. There are definitely times in my own community I feel like I haven't measured up, but I think that's the human experience. There are times in the queer community I don't think I've measured up as an advocate, as an ally, as as myself. I think the feeling of not being enough is kind of ingrained. I think it's something we transgenerationally inherit that we don't necessarily consent to um, or sign up for. But I remember this experience, which I would love to share with you because it was so meaningful. I was living in Calgary and there is actually a diverse Jewish community in Calgary. There's a reformed temple, Temple B'nai Tikva, where I went to synagogue with the most amazing rabbi, who is Rabbi Mark Glickman. There's Beth Sedek, which is a great congregation as well, which is conservative. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with ju- Judaism, conservative with a small C, not political conservatism. It's the conservation of Judaism. So it's kind of half Hebrew, half English, a bit more traditional, but still very much egalitarian. And then there's Orthodox and there's kind of House of Jacob Orthodox, which is very Orthodox. And there's Chabad, which is Orthodox, but really just um, into Jewish mobilization. So you'll see them all over in Thailand and Guatemala and in spaces where you don't think to find them to ensure that Jews can be Jews. And when I say that, I mean, when I was young and tattooed and queer and backpacking Guatemala in Panajachel, I went to Chabad for a dinner. So they really are truly open. And I had become acquainted with a Chabad rabbi in Calgary, who's called Rabbi Groner, who is the educational rabbi. And he's this wonderful, kind person I think he did know that I was gay. We later became Facebook friends. So I think he surely must have seen it there. And at one point, we're actually embarking now. It's going to be Purim soon, which is a Jewish uh, holiday from the book of Esther. And he posted on his Facebook that he was looking for someone to come and help at Chabad. And I guess I just woke up with like a volunteer streak that day and decided I was going to go help somebody. 
And my partner at the time, we were both vegetarian. We offered to help Chabad. We go, we see the rabbi and we go in and hi rabbi, what can I help you with? And it was cutting probably 400 pounds of kosher chicken. (laughs) And we're both so vegetarian. And we were like, amazing. God is testing us today. So, and I, unbeknownst to me, again, growing into faith, but not being on the Orthodox side of the Jewish spectrum and like erasing the binary of what people think Jewish is. The rabbi was participating in a fast that I didn't even know existed called the fast of Esther, which is not one that I've ever done. And so he was fasting. We were cutting frozen chicken. It was a whole ordeal. He went to teach um, a Torah study, a Devar Torah study to a group of women. And he later came back to the room and he looked kind of faint. I mean, he was probably on hour 16, 17, 18 of fasting. And I said, Rabbi, how do you feel? And he looked at us and he didn't misgender my partner who is openly trans. He looked at them and said, seeing you two folks do all this meaningful work is all of the nourishment that I need and walked out. And just like that, you knew he meant it as much as he'd ever meant anything he'd ever said, that he was truly elated to have us there as this queer couple, just helping them cut chicken and perform a mitzvah to get ready for their Purim party. And even then, the most orthodox of rabbis was, maybe we didn't talk about it, maybe it wasn't affirming, but I mean, that's a lot better than a lot of other religious spaces that I know. Definitely. Yeah, that's a really lovely story. Thank you for letting me share that. I'd forgotten about that story, but Purim is coming up and I remembered it. Yeah, I've been seeing all the, what is that cookie called? The the triangle cookie with the the commentation. So delish. Anyway, um, I've been seeing some folks posting pictures of cookies. I know, like which commentation are you? As long Mm -hmm. as you're not prune, you're good. Yeah, but one of my friends loves prune and I was like, I don't know if it's prune. Maybe. I don't know. I've never met someone who likes Purim Hamantashen other than my grandfather. I will. I'll have to introduce you to. Um, yeah. One of the things that I also, so in my, my little faith journey, I somehow ended up at Temple One Tikva, um, with Yeah. Because it's just such a great space. If you haven't been there and you're in Calgary, it's just a gorgeous space in general, but also so welcoming. And at the time it was Rabbi Howard that I had met. Um, but I remember going in and learning about Tikkun Olam. And if like folks in, that are listening that are from Christian background, look it up. It'll blow your mind in terms of like, yeah, just the narratives that are so beautiful. But also I found like the best part about exploring with Rabbi Howard was that, that exact same thing that you said that like asking questions is encouraged. And that's something that's not really true in Christianity and Christianity, especially in like purity culture. It's just like, this is the message. This is how it is. Sex is bad. Exploring your sexuality is bad. Everything's bad. And don't ask questions about it. And like, just don't have sex and like no questions. But I love that about Judaism. It's like, you're encouraged to ask questions and to like be challenged and to step into different narratives. And that's something that's always just like being so beautiful to me. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Um, I, I don't know if you watch the film Save that has Mandy Moore in it, but it's about, yeah, yes, the best movie, honestly, my favorite movie as a kid. And when the pastor, Pastor Skip just says, you know, you will get pregnant and you will like that. That's the end of it. Like good Christians don't get jiggy with it till they're married. Like that's it. When they were required to have sex or required to have sex education, I should say. 
And, yeah. and they decided, you know, good, that's it. You know, God put a man and a woman on the earth and that's, and it was so specific and so binary in every capacity of the word. And I remember thinking so interesting that I kind of grew up with this narrative too, because I'm not Christian. I'm not mm. part of this group. I'm not religious. I'd never been um, to a Christian church. I'd never later in life, I got to explore all the Christian churches, which was great, but I hadn't been to any of them. And I thought so interesting that my culture has totally adopted this. And by my culture, I mean my kind of left of the spectrum side of Judaism. Um, I was so surprised by the fact that I was seeing the representation of what I was experiencing in this very Christian film. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I forgot about that movie. And then when she throws the Bible at her, I don't know if you remember that. Part. Oh yeah, she's like, this is not a weapon, Hillary Faye. I have every, honestly, it is embarrassing, but I'm willing to tell you, I have every line of that movie memorized probably as well as my sister's. I need to watch that movie again. I you have to watch that, that together. I would love to watch that movie with you. That would be amazing. Um, and I love that it's your favorite, like one of your favorite movies too. That's really great. It's such a good movie. Yeah. If you all haven't seen it, if you're listening and you're like, what's saved with Andy Moore? It'll be worth your time. Definitely. The best two hours you'll spend. Okay. I have a random question and it's kind of a giant question, but let's see if we can do a little bit around it. Um, what does Judaism say about sex? I'll just leave it at sex for now. Like, in terms of like, what what would your experience of Judaism say, or like, yeah, the Hebrew Bible say? So it's so about. interesting because Judaism is categorized into, for example, we don't have like an Old Testament and then a New Testament. We have the books of Torah, and then we also have the Talmud and Talmudic law. And the way it breaks down is that in Judaism, there is what is, you know, all the all the stories and all the books that were told as a form of learning and a form of teaching. And then there are the rules. So the rules are very interesting. And in Leviticus, you find rules and you find rules about not mixing fabrics together and what it is, what kashrut means to keep kosher and why you have to eat certain animals and why certain ones are prohibited and considerations and what you're permitted to do on Shabbat and what you're not permitted, etc. And it's so interesting because people have really picked and chosen what it is they've kept. So you'll have people who probably definitely mix their fabrics, um, but don't eat pork. Right. And all of these things are categorized as as taboo. So premarital sex is discouraged, but it's as discouraged as mixing cotton and polyester or the equivalent of. And when you look at it that way of something being it's called Tova. There's a really great Facebook group called Sounds Like a Tova, but okay. And it's a Jewish Facebook group where people just compare things that are outlined as being um, the equivalent, like in Islam, of, of being haram, like being not okay or unkosher, mm. if you will. And it's so funny that, you know, sodomy and, you know, mixing fabrics are basically on the same page. So when you look at it in that perspective, you're like, hmm, like this is a, t- it translates most closely to the word taboo in English. Right. So something being taboo is a lot less than something being significantly prohibited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In like Christian narrative, it would be like, it's weird because it- sexual ethics holds so much more weight and like it would never be considered just a taboo which is why I call that like why we call it prayer and private parts is because in so many ways like sex is taboo in our culture but also like so is religion and so is church stuff and right and like those are both things that we are supposed to do behind closed doors but actually everybody has some sort of spirituality or way that that informs you as well as a sexuality. That's yeah. 
Definitely. So the Torah doesn't outlaw sex before marriage, but it doesn't approve of it. So it's so interesting because things are considered taboo, but there's actually nowhere that says you can't have sex before you're married. It's not distinctly written, but it's so interesting because the way Judaism in orthodoxy is observed is, you know, there's all this culture, which I think even aside from sex, like you can look at it as sex culture, you can look at it as gender culture, etc. But I actually angle it more from a gender perspective because women menstruate during that time. There are things that happen after they menstruate, they go to the mikvah, which is a Jewish ritual bath. And then there are all these steps, but it's so interesting because it's exactly calculated in a sophisticated and yet also not sophisticated way to track your menstrual cycle and to track your cycle for fertility. And so... Yeah, it's really interesting because you abstain from sex for a certain amount of days, then you go to a mikvah, then you wait, then you do this. And it's basically always that you would intentionally be having what's assumed to be heterosexual intercourse while you're ovulating for the purpose of conception. So if you look at it at when this book was written, which sometimes I think the Torah is a remarkably progressive book, and sometimes I think it's not so progressive. When you think of it in a day and age when Jews were constantly living in persecution and were building their own families and were doing their best, I guess, to survive, having children and offspring was inherently important. It was essential and it was crucial. So when you look at it in that way and you think, okay, there was this kind of curriculum, if you will, or this schedule in place to ensure that people were procreating, you think that sounds kind of tribal and also not dissimilar to anything else we have in life. Mm. I think that's kind of ingrained into societal culture now, where if you ask people, you know, do you want children? It's like, I don't know. Or if I've been told that I want children. So it's, let's figure that out. And that's a lot to unpack. And there's this kind of calendar that you follow. But in addition to it, It's not necessarily a thing that's obligatory. There's so many things about Judaism and sex that are actually really beautiful, I think, from a feminist perspective, but I think some people think they're less beautiful. So on Shabbat, it's really, really encouraged to have sex with your husband or wife, assuming that you have a husband or wife. I try and take that and remove the gender from it and just say, with your partner, to connect intimately with your partner. And Mm -hmm. Some people think, oh, that seems so forceful. Women must feel so obligated to have sex on Friday. And the truth is I'm not an Orthodox woman. So I definitely cannot speak for Orthodox women in heterosexual marriages or partnerships and whether or not they feel a pressure to have sex on Friday night. But I know that for me and my partnership, I think about it probably all week long. I'm like, it's going to be Friday. We're going to have a Shabbat. We're going to connect. Even if it's not sex, it's some element of intimacy and To me, you have a night that you're like, this is for us. This is no cell phones, no work, disconnected. And I've always found that a really healthy part of Jewish sexual culture that I think people don't talk about enough. Or if they do, I don't know that they call light to the goodness of it. Yeah, I had a friend that converted to Islam. And one of the reasons that she converted was around the same sort of practices um, around the rules around sex and how many times and she felt that we're like really honored her as a woman and it was like it was really exciting for her to like connect with her partner over this and yeah I've, I've also heard that about um I, I don't remember what Rabbi Howard told me but I remember that standing out about Shabbat as well like having sex with your partner on Shabbat is like part of like a beautiful Shabbat evening 
I think, yeah, I think it's something that's really beautiful and remarkable. There was a film that came out, Obedient, I think it's called, with Rachel McAdams. It was about Orthodox Jewish women being queer. And in that film, they kind of portray, you know, one woman says to the other woman, Ugh, and do, do you have to have sex on Fridays? And they look like a little, you know, in desperation of not wanting it. And I think that's definitely a reality pe- for people. So in no way, shape or form erasing that experience. But I think in some progressive households, we look at that as a night to kind of honor it. And it's a sex positive culture. Like, I don't know a lot of other faith groups or religious groups that are saying you should make an intentional point to sexually connect with your partner. In fact, I see a lot of religious conversations or faith conversations saying we don't talk about sex at all, even in a good way, even if you're married, even if you're heterosexual, even if you're heteronormative, it's so taboo, just sex at all, or the enjoyment of sex, especially I think if you're a woman, a woman with a man, a woman with a woman, a woman with a person, I think, um, a lot of people in general are discouraged from having sex positive conversations. A lot of women are excluded from having sex positive conversations. And then when you import that or transplant that to a religious space, it kind of marginalizes it even further. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely a lot of what I see is we don't talk about this, not even when you're married. And that's, yeah, that's not an idea of sex positive at all. So thanks for pointing that out. Um, that's great just to like unpack that narrative right and like the stories that we often miss about um, folks in the like in in that narrative I guess I would say yeah definitely yeah that is really interesting about like the sexuality piece is would it be the same thing like taboo in terms of like being gay or um what about like gender expression? I know I'm asking you about that. Yeah, no, I love these questions. So again, not speaking from an Orthodox perspective, but I, you know what? No, I'm going to actually undo that. I'm going to, I'm going to argue with myself. I digress. I actually will reference an Orthodox perspective, but it's not my own. So Mm -hmm. if people love religion and sex, like Jill and I obviously do, then there's Mm -hmm. a rabbi who is called Rabbi Mike Moskovich, who is a rabbi at Beit Simcha Torah, which means the house of Torah um, in New York. And it's a queer synagogue. Um, It has a lot of congregants who are not queer and actually a lot of congregants who are not Jewish, people from other faith groups, including Christian and Islam, have decided to go and and become congregants in which they're welcome to do. But he is a thrice ordained yeshiva ultra orthodox Jewish man who wrote a book recently, which I have a copy of and got signed and went to his talk called (laughs) Activism, in which he references the Torah and he talks about the fact that it is not only okay to support gender and sexually diverse people. It's not only okay to be trans affirming. It is required of us. Um, Mm. And he reads, he writes these beautiful stories. Like during Passover, you have the children who have the four questions and he has, you know, pieces like answering the transgender son. He's written all these beautiful pieces that take Torah and that take scripture and that put them, put them into contemporary context. But it's interesting because he is not a trans person and he's not a queer person. And there are trans and queer rabbis out there who didn't get the job. And some people felt there are mixed opinions on this and I'll leave it at that. But there was no one who was 
not that being Orthodox is a qualifier, but was quote unquote as Orthodox as he was being a thrice ordained Orthodox rabbi. And it was so interesting and holy and magnificent that he was willing to do this work. And he said something at his talk that will resonate with me forever. And he said, our system is broken. And the fact that I have my job is predicated on a broken system because if things were good, we wouldn't need allies. We wouldn't need people to stand up for these communities. If people were in these roles doing it for themselves, but the reality is they're not. And he recognized the amount of privilege that he has and that he had, and he is truly a huge ally to the queer community. And he met the rabbi at Beit Simchatora, the head rabbi, who's a lesbian woman, um, because he got arrested uh, when he was protesting the the deportation of immigration, of, of DACA in mm. the U.S., he was arrested. They were all sitting in the back of a cop van. There were kind of like eight Jews back there. A few of them, two of them, three of them maybe were rabbis. And someone said, who's got some Torah? And he had some Torah and it was good. And now he is the straight heterosexual rabbi of a queer synagogue fighting constantly for trans rights. And so his textual activism book is incredible. And what it is that he's been doing to, I think, articulate things like, you know, trans rates of suicide are astronomical. This is a really real experience. And gender-based violence is a really real experience. And hate crimes against transgender folks is a really real experience. And not only should we be, you know, considering whether or not it's okay to be affirming of these people, it is our God-given duty and right to be sanctifying life above all else and to be protecting marginalized people, especially when it comes to life or death. And so that's the Orthodox perspective that doesn't belong to me, but that I've bared witness to. And it's Mm -hmm. been such a growth for me. And I think reconciling a part of the community that I assumed didn't have space for me. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. We're going to all look that up though. And I want to go. We can confidently assume that everyone is going to go follow Rabbi Mike Motzkovich now. Yeah, that's super. That would be a great place to go visit in New York, I would imagine. Yes, absolutely. He's so scholarly and so amazing. And then the rest of Judaism, I mean, there are Orthodox spaces that haven't caught up yet. That is the truth. Um, But I optimistically believe that they will. And Something that I would actually love to share is I think an anecdote that I use a lot when I'm in spaces that intersect queerness and religion, because I get questions all the time that surprise me because I know what it is for me to be Jewish, but other people don't know what it is for me to be Jewish. So I get questions where people say, oh my goodness, well, does your family know? And I'm so surprised by that because I forget what other people think Jews are like. If they don't know, they really do not know. And a litmus test that I had for myself a long time ago was whether I felt safer being queer in the Jewish community or Jewish in the queer community. And I actually feel safer being queer in the Jewish community, which I think no one of a faith practice ever expects me to say. So my lived experience being in the reform movement and then the conservative movement, I've never felt ostracized from a community space. I've never felt like a rabbi wouldn't marry me. I've never experienced any of these feelings since coming to faith because I truly view the reform and conservative movement as being so forward and progressive in 
just queer rights at all. I say the same thing about being Christian and queer. Like, I don't know what's harder is like coming out as like um, queer and Christian space or Christian and queer space. Yeah, that's interesting that we say the same thing. It goes um, back to that question of like, you know, I could go into a room and I could be really smart. But then when I was a religious, they thought, oh, maybe... Maybe I thought wrong about you and you can be in a queer space and, you know, having some drinks and celebrating any sort of festivity and it can be a hot and sexy space. And when you're like, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus. People think, whoa, you lost me there. And so it is so interesting to, I guess, I I think it's more interesting to articulate this. I think faith-based people know this. They're like, yeah, of course we're cool. (laughs) But I think the outside community thinks they're the most progressive or the most accepting or the most welcoming until they they get hit with a moment of, huh, I didn't expect you to be this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. My, like I've talked a little bit on a podcast about my wedding to my current partner not that I've had multiple weddings I haven't just the one um but when we were experiencing a lot of pushback from the Christian community uh Temple Bonetikba like the folks I knew from there were like how can we help you get married like in a religious space like let's they were they were more on board than the Christian spaces that I worked in for years okay that warms my heart so Mm -hmm. much yeah, it was amazing. So that is possibly the best thing I've ever heard because Temple Benitigba is so important to me and so near and dear to my heart. That is yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, it gives me warm, warm fuzzies. I mean, it all worked out, and like our wedding ended up being like a protest within the Anglican Church, which was super cool and like fit us both really well. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, just I had that exact same experience. So wow, I've never. That's so amazing because. I think some Christian communities, I don't know. I wonder, did you ever feel like there was a moment, if I can ask you a question, did you ever feel like, you know, yeah, you could be Christian, but you couldn't maybe be practicing or you could believe in what you believed in and be secure in your relationship with God or your relationship with Jesus or both, but not necessarily be a church goer? Did you ever feel that you were going to have to pick one or the other? Oh yeah. I still have like moments of that. And like, I... I thought that to do, because I always knew that I wanted to talk about sex and sexuality in the church. And I was always like, I can't do that until I'm like good enough or pure enough or Christian enough. And like, that means that then I'm going to have, this is going to have to look a certain way and I'm going to have to like choose that. But then I also had this narrative because with purity culture, there's so much like, you're just like inherently as a woman, you're just from a young age, quite like, dirty and tainted and sinful if you have any sexuality that I was like oh I'm, I've already failed and I haven't even started so why should I even try um yeah and so I definitely feel bad like sometimes still to this day and like it's a constant struggle but that's the like work that we keep doing and holding space for that like you actually get to have a relationship with God and a healthy sexuality that's not oppressed and doesn't have to like go into a closet or doesn't have to be hidden away. Yeah. That's so important. It's so important that you're doing this work because I guess I know people who are Christian and who are gay, but they come from or Christian and trans or Christian and and Christian and and Christian and. And I think 
most of the ones that I know have been so open about sharing their journey because they're coming from really affirming spaces. And I guess I forget that not all Christian spaces are there yet. I know about some, obviously, but the same way that Judaism is so diverse. Um, when I worked in my previous role of interreligion, I met, you know, six Christian pastors, priests, clergy, etc. And I thought, okay, you all need to explain to me what the differences are between you. And I think people feel that way about Judaism when it's outside of your own. Sit me down and tell me where it is that you disagree. And in Judaism, sometimes it's something so small that will separate a community. And I learned that, you know, we're we're not different from each other. We're different like each other in learning that Christianity has things that separate them from all the other groups. So I got to learn about evangelical Lutheran, which actually ordains women, but then other Lutherans don't ordain women. And I got to learn about all the richness and diversity in Christianity. But I think I forget sometimes that not all of the Christian faith groups are there yet. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they won't, maybe they won't be there. Yeah, it's interesting because we, I know, I don't know if you know this in Calgary, the municipality just passed a bylaw that people can't practice conversion therapy. Um, I saw that. Yeah, which is a great step. And it's interesting because folks were asking me about how I felt about it. And I'm like, well, of course, I, I know from like a psychology point of view that we can't convert, like we can't change someone's sexuality or gender identity. But I do know people, and like this is an important place to hold space for, that people feel like they have to choose between their religion and their sexuality or gender identity. And people really struggle and people want to be in their communities because it's it's really important to them. And so then how do you hold space for folks that, that really want to be rid of parts of themselves to belong in parts of community, right? And like we, yeah. And of course, this is important at all stages. You know, it's really important to be an adult and to feel secure in your queer community and in your faith community or your religious community or your cultural community or your ethnic community. But I really go back to my own experience and to the experience of others that I've heard when you're at a young age of coming out, because to me, you grow up with your, if you grow up with your culture or your faith or your ethnicity or just whatever your ideals are, because you weren't a person of faith from a young age and I wasn't a person of faith at a young age. You grow up with, I guess, whatever your values are, secular or otherwise, and you're really attached to the life that you have. And anything that threatens to shake that security is really, really scary. And we need to make sure that people from leadership in all of these communities, ethnic, religious, cultural, sociocultural, are doing a good job at a formative age explaining to people that you can love whoever you want and be whoever you want. There's so much gender affirming uh, parenting and clergyship and, you know, rabbinical leadership that's happening right now that wasn't happening when I was young, but giving up queerness at the time seemed a lot easier. I found out that I was gay. I figured it out. I got the key. I knew what was wrong. I knew what was causing my crippling anxiety in my life, but I wasn't willing to give up the life that I had known for the 15 years prior to that. I would sooner give up this maybe fantasy of a queer life or living an out, safe, happy, sex positive life because I didn't know it yet. And I think that's so scary to think about when I think about other people living that experience. It kind of instills this panic in me because I don't want them to give up. I don't want someone to give up this beautiful, magnificent, safe and secure life that they could have because they think that they risk giving up the life that they already have. And we need Mm -hmm. to... I think figure out, and that's why this podcast that you're doing is so amazing because Mm -hmm. 
showcasing people that are inhabiting these multiple spaces and this intersectionality and these lived experiences and personal narratives is so important because I think if I knew one other queer Jewish person when I was younger, I would have had a much easier time. And Mm -hmm. it is amazing that you are being this person for young queer Christian folks. I think the same about you. Um, a hundred percent. Anytime I have folks that are like, Oh, I'm kind of thinking about it. Like that come from, obviously I get lots of different folks from lots of different backgrounds, but anytime it's about Jewishness and queerness, I'm like, listen, I have a person for you. Um, but representation totally matters. It It does. It does. A thousand times it does. Yeah. And like, even I know like we, because we're both, um, queer women talking about this in like religious settings, but like we kind of defaulted to those narratives and talking about gender expression as well. But I see this for folks who are trying to explore even just like healthy, like masturbation, um, like poly or non-monogamy communities, or even just like, like igniting some sort of like intimacy that's not uh, oppressive in their marriage. Um, like it's just anytime people are stepping out of those really oppressive narratives that we've like I say we as in Christian narratives have put on folks um but yeah creating like representation and space for people to have a conversation is so important yeah this is amazing it is and gender identity and expression is so much of it I think the dialogue has changed so much regarding sexuality and gender expression and gender identity and I remember being a kid and you know at the time I thought that I would take anything. I was like, I will take whatever I can get. If I saw just like gay men being represented, I thought, fine, at least there's something else mm-hmm. being represented. But I am loving that in my own community, I think queerness is definitely being represented. But I, I'm serious. Not only did I not know gay people growing up, I definitely didn't know trans people. And now I have a sibling who has just been the biggest, like, you know, indirect educator, because I don't expect them to do that emotional labor, but they just exist and have taught me passively so much and how to be a better ally. I have several former partners who have been like amazing and sharing with not only me, but the world. They've been very open about their experiences um, and have been abundantly sharing. And you can see that there are healthy trans people who are living religious or inclusive or spiritual lives Um, and that they're being affirmed by their communities and that they're being welcomed. And that is so important. And I'm so glad that I think in Judaism, something that I'm realizing is I'm seeing leadership switch towards not only, you know, yeah, we'll marry same sex people. Fine. I feel like they're celebrating it. I think, you know, Rabbi Glickman said at the Pride dinner, tolerance is not enough to hell with tolerance. Like we want to celebrate you. You bring richness and you bring beauty and you bring diversity. And that is not a point of tolerance. That is a point of celebration. And I feel that that's happening with the trans community right now in Judaism. I went for a dinner in another city where I knew nobody. I went to the president of the synagogue's house because it's my friend's father. He welcomed me and I got to meet um, his trans granddaughter. I got to meet, you know, umpteen young trans Jewish youth this summer across the country at Pride Shabbat dinners. And I thought when I was 15, 16, 17, I didn't know trans people existed, let alone knew that there were trans Jewish people. And the fact that we are creating a space that is safe and secure says everything. And we do that through Purim is coming up. We do that through egalitarian Megillah readings. And we do that through ungendered learning. And we do that through not having bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, but having b'nai mitzvot and having them be gender neutral. 
And mm. this this richness, I think, it's so beautiful because I'm almost overwhelmed at how beautiful it is because I never could have imagined it. And I think the most humbling part of it all is that now in this past year, I'm realizing this is merely the beginning for us. It's going to get so much better still. Oh my gosh. That's exciting. And now I'm like, I think you should just be on the podcast all the time. Uh, That would be really great. My dream would be to hang out with you all the time on the podcast. I would love that. Because I know there's so many other questions that I didn't even get to you today. And I'm like, just being mindful of your time. Um, But I know that you are about to take a trip and you're going to listen to some of the past episodes. I'm so excited. They're all cued and ready to go for the Iceland Femme hiking trip. (laughs) That. I want to go on an Iceland fan hiking trip. That's I'm waiting amazing. for you to join. Okay. Well, you if you organize some sort of like Israel fan trip, I would also be 100% on board for that too because Israel is one of the top places I've ever been in my entire life. Okay, amazing. Now I'm thinking we're going to take this conversation offline and start talking about how to plan that. Yeah, exactly. Um, but as you as you journey forward, I hope that you can come back on the podcast in time. I really thank you for your time. Um, I know that like the folks that listen will be really, really touched by the things that you said and the things that you shared. So I really appreciate you sharing today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for the amazing questions and for all of the inclusive dialogue. It's always interesting entering a multi-faith or interfaith space and wondering, you know, am I going to be able to even articulate what Judaism is in this framework? And is it going to fit? And I felt that this was such an amazing conversation. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I'm, yeah, I'm grateful for you. And for folks that want any more information or want to get connected with Jess and some of the work that she's doing, you can message myself and Nick and we can connect you. Um, if you're part of like Jewish communities that you and you wanted to have these conversations around queer identities or gender identity and Jewish communities, I know Jess would be happy to have combos. So you can message us and we'll connect you. Or if you have any other questions, feel free to contact us through Instagram um, or prayerandprivateparts at gmail.com. I hope everybody has a lovely evening. Thank you, Jess. Thank you. Talk soon. Okay. Take care. Thanks for listening to Prayer and Private Parts, a podcast about sex and Jesus. If you want more episodes, you can find them all on iTunes and Google Play or on our website, prayerandprivateparts.com. We'll have all our episodes there along with maybe some show notes and ways to get in touch with us. If you want to get in touch, you can also email us at prayerandprivateparts at gmail.com. See you soon.